You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Leading today's conversation is Sally Greenberg of the National Consumers League. Good afternoon, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Kingsburg. Welcome to the NCL podcast, We Can Do This. We're delighted to have both of you with us, and we would love, of course, to see you in person, but we're going to have to wait till we all get our COVID vaccines. I'm going to start with introducing Dr. Krista Johnson-Agbaku. She is an assistant research professor and director of the Office of Refugee Health at Arizona University Southwest Interdisciplinary Research Center. She is also an obstetrician gynecologist at Maricopa Integrated Health System, where she is founder and director of the Refugee Women's Health Clinic. Krista has been chosen to receive the Children's Action Alliance Jacques Steiner Public Leadership Award. This is an award that's representative of her dedication to address the medical needs of the refugee population in Arizona. Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg, is the chief of the Division of Behavioral Medicine at McDonald Women's Hospital, University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, and professor in reproductive biology and psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. Her areas of clinical specialization include sexual medicine, female sexual disorders, menopause, pregnancy, postpartum mood disorders, and psychological aspects of infertility. So I'm so delighted to welcome you both to NCL's podcast, and we're here today to discuss a topic that may be top of mind to both of you, but I'm guessing too often flies below the radar for the general public. It's the topic of women's sexual health. I think a lot of people would be surprised at how broad this topic is. So let me start with you, Dr. Kinsberg. Can we ask you what the issue of women's sexual health actually encompasses? Well, first of all, hi, Sally. Uh, It's great to hear you, if not see you. And I really want to thank you for devoting a podcast to women's sexual health. Uh, It really, to me, is an appropriate topic for consumer advocacy. So good for you for talking about it. You know, male sexual function has been front and center to consumer advertising. Think about all those Viagra commercials and media attention. But women's sexual health has lagged, um, unfortunately, way far behind, despite the high prevalence of sexual problems in women. All right, so to your question, what does women's sexual health encompass? Well, broadly speaking, the topic covers both healthy and dysfunctional sexual health. So both ends of the spectrum, I think, deserve attention and some discussion. So on the healthy end of the spectrum, the topic that that we encompass is really vast. And I mean a vast range of what can and what should be accepted as healthy sexual function. So first, can we dispel the rigid Western cultural norms that quote, healthy, normal female sexual health would simply be sort of bending to the will of their heterosexual male partners. Um, And let's focus on pleasure, on pleasing, and um, and embracing and empowering women um, to take on their own sexual health. So I think 
this podcast is, goes a, a long way to do that. And I'm sure uh, Krista will join me in that one. Um, and so I know, you know, because Sally, I know you, I know you're, I can read your mind and you're saying, well, tell me more. So let me break sexual function into four categories to make it sort of um, uh, visual for you. So we have desire, we have arousal, we have orgasm, and we have freedom from pain. And this can be actually flipped on its back and no sexual innuendo intended to describe the categories of female sexual dysfunction. So we have problems with desire, arousal, orgasm, or pain with sexual activity. So that's how we sort of encompass what's healthy and what's dysfunctional. To keep it into these categories, I think will help us talk about what's what's going on. Um, so did that answer your question? Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, well, sexual health is almost always thought of as reproductive health to most of us, but it, it uh, truly entails so much more beyond procreation. So well, wait, Sally, let me just say, you know, sex for procreation is one of the, the hardest hits on sexual health because it is no fun trying to, you know, uh, procreate when it's not happening. And so now it becomes a, a, an effort. And so, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I work in fertility clinics, so I, I know the, the stress on trying to conceive. And now you've got tonight's the night syndrome. You've got, you know, uh, intercourse, if, if it's a heterosexual couple tied to failure, if they don't conceive. And, and let's remember that procreation isn't just for heterosexual couples. So that often entails fertility um, treatments anyway. So sorry, I just wanted to make sure that we, we keep sexual health and procreation, um, despite the fact that we need to have mostly have, um, intercourse, actually, you don't really even need that anymore, um, to, to uh, have children, um, you know, sex for pleasure is very different. Uh-huh. Um, no, I think that's important to put those uh, categories in place so that we, we understand. And also the idea of sex for procreation is probably what you, uh, your, you, people in your field would consider kind of old fashioned. Um, so let me turn to you, Dr. Johnson. You work with a largely immigrant Somali community. Can you tell us what challenges girls, teens, and women in these communities face when it comes to their sexual health? Uh, I just want to finish and then I'll let you uh, answer. Violence against women is usually associated with sexual assault and shame is a problem across the board. Um, would you say that the stigma is a greater barrier in uh, immigrant uh, communities? Yes. So. Um, I want to first thank you, Sally, for having me, and it's an honor for me to be on this podcast with Dr. Kingsburg. And uh, um, I, as you said, I work with a very large um, refugee and immigrant population from all over the world um, who have been experienced um, many forms of um, human rights atrocities, um, sexual violence, other forms of gender-based violence. Um, cultural practices such as female genital mutilation and cutting. And so in the purview of um, my work, sexual health is a, an important um, consideration. In fact, when you look at the World Health Organization's um, definition for sexual health, it is a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being. So it's not just the mere, mere absence of disease or dysfunction, but it is 
uh, a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships. And it's the ability to have pleasurable and safe sexual experiences, free of coercion, free of discrimination, and free of violence. And what's so critical, especially when working with vulnerable and marginalized communities is that there should also be advocacy to ensure equitable access to sexual health care. Um, and so in the populations that I work with, you have to also consider that there are historical um, legacies that might impact the way in which um, uh, sexual health is valued and, and addressed. You know, for communities of color, women of color in the United States, you have the historical legacy of slavery where systemic rape was prevalent. You have, say, the eugenics movement where women did not have control over, because they were forced to undergo sterilizations, for instance, um, in terms of selective breeding. You have even current modern day times you've seen in recent years attention to this, this, the status of immigrants in detention facilities where they were forced to undergo hysterectomies without consent. So we see um, a lot of assaults on women's bodies, on women's ability to um, to have control over their sexuality. Um, there is a lot of historical, um, uh, uh, let's see, racial profiling where there's labeling of, say, Black women's bodies as hypersexualized, etc. And so this all impacts trust. This impacts uh, women's um, um, willingness to participate in research studies. This access, this influences whether women would be likely to seek care when they experience um, concerns or have concerns around their sexual health. And so we really have a lot of work to do to address the challenges. So, you know, shame, stigma, uh, we're just beginning to touch the surface. Um, there, there's a lot of um, ways that health systems could do a better job in creating safe spaces to be able to reach communities, especially communities of color and um, engage in respectful care, um, open dialogue, um, embracing cultural humility, um, things such as ensuring that there is gender concordance and uh, cultural and linguistic concordance depending on the needs of the community or patient um, population that you're serving. So these are all the things that have become huge barriers to care within refugee and immigrant communities. And um, it's something that um, remains a challenge, especially in training the next generation of clinicians and scientists to be mindful and inclusive um, in regards to making sure that sexual health care and attention to sexual health is truly equitable and is truly safe and free of um, um, discrimination and coercion. Right. And that's a great segue to um, the next question I had. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting you, Dr. Johnson, a few years ago when I attended a conference in Phoenix at which um, uh, 
Dr. Kingsburg was invited to speak to a group of medical students. So I've got a question for both of you. Um, Cheryl, I'll ask you to answer this first. Are medical students well-trained to discuss issues related to sexual health? I imagine, you know, they spend a lot of time um, studying about it and thinking about it and understand how to talk to uh, women and men about sexual health. I could be wrong about that. And um, so let me start with... uh, um, what what's the training for uh, medical students and you know if you could set up an ideal sort of uh, a protocol for them um, what would that look like Sally the the simple answer to your question about medical education um, is no there isn't a lot Uh, and you know one of the first grants I ever got was uh, and I I hate to admit how long ago it was was 2001 and uh, Case Western Reserve um, was granted one of seven um, grants to change, and this was sponsored by Pfizer at the time, uh, to change the sexual health curriculum, to to add to it. Um, and we were one of seven schools. And the truth is we were already one of the best, in ter- which is probably why we got the grant, um, to provide sexual health education. And here's what happens in medical schools. Every few years they come around and they change the curriculum. So what changes I'd put in place went away. And now at K, we have very few hours of sexual health in the curriculum, and and that is across the board. I will tell you that um, a week ago, uh, some of the female medical students in the Chicago area put together their own symposium on female sexual health and sexual dysfunction because they recognized the limitations in what they were getting. And so they asked um, many of us who are, you know, essentially experts in the field to you know, volunteer our time. We spent a, a Sunday um, giving them lectures and symposia and breakout sessions because they took it upon themselves. Uh, they re- recognized the need for this. And let me say this goes beyond medical school training into OBGYN residents. Uh, uh, OBGYN residencies have very little training in sexual health too, and primary care as well. So the 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 area is ripe for um, for education. We are trying to uh, create an atmosphere where, in education and even beyond in practice, clinicians are learning to to put sexual health. Um, in their review of systems so that it isn't so awkward. So it's in the electronic medical record as a review of systems. And it's not hard. It, it can, can be easily in, incorporated without taking up a lot of time. As part of my review of systems, I ask everybody about their sexual health because we know it's important to your quality of life and to your health. Uh, what sexual concerns do you have? Are you having any concerns with desire, arousal, orgasm, pain? Um, and to uh, you know, to Krista's point, we want to you know embrace the fact that um, that there's a lot of uh, of concern and fear about opening up about anything. I just spent the morning in a in a train the trainer on GLBTQIA um, to uh, to train our university hospitals in all the departments about how to be encompassing for um, for transgender, for um, non-binary, for uh, various ge- uh, sexual orientations, and to incorporate that into our healthcare in simple as forms, so that it's not are you a male, are you a female, um, to allow for the fact that there's a huge variety and to to open the door so that people can tell us what their sexual concerns are. So. 
Dr. Johnson, you uh, have some difficult conversations, it sounds like, because of uh, cultural issues. You, you, have over, um, you have patients from over 60 different uh, ethnic backgrounds and countries. And so the question is, you know, how do you start a conversation with, uh, with these patients? What kinds of questions should patients uh, uh, expect to be asked or to ask you? And it's always a, a tough one because I know patients are embarrassed to bring up sexual health and often healthcare providers are embarrassed to raise it with patients. So how do you approach that, that conversation? Sure. So yes, uh, it's a very critical one that needs to be addressed. And one of the first things I do is really make sure that we've create, we create a safe and welcoming space where women feel comfortable that they can speak in their native language. So we have cultural health navigators who speak up to 18 languages reflecting the various regions of origin of our patient population. And we have been able to nurture and sustain trust and trusted relationships with our communities for many years. Uh, we are able to, uh, through that trust, um, make sure that women understand that we will respect their privacy and, and uphold their confidentiality at all times. We make sure that these discussions occur in their native language so they can feel comfortable expressing themselves however they feel um, they want to convey their concerns. And we also universalize, um, for instance, we see many women who've experienced gender-based violence with rape as a weapon of war, especially those coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in that context, I use a universalizing statement stating, you know, we serve many women from this region of the world and we um, understand that women may have experienced violence in various forms. And I kind of normalize that this is something that they can feel comfortable expressing because it's something that we are very familiar with and that we serve and that we seek to uh, create a safe space where women can feel whenever they're ready that they can begin to share their experiences. I have many patients, some of whom have lived here for many years and it's not until they come to our clinic that they're for the very first time they're able to open up and talk about their experience of sexual violence, for instance, or suddenly break down from, from not receiving the right uh, interventions or behavioral health uh, therapies, that they are finally able to feel comfortable talking about their experiences and willing to, to seek help. So I think being able to create that environment where women feel that they're in a trusted and safe space will set up the, the, the grounds for being able to have meaningful discussions uh, to arrive at ways that we can help them. And it, does, it requires time. It's not something that happens with just the very first visit. You have to uh, nurture and sustain that trust, and that might take several visits. Um, and it's okay. But the more that you're able to show compassion and empathy and uh, show, treat them with respect and value their voice um, and give them that space that whenever they feel comfortable, we are here and we are here to help them. I think that's that approach that has really had the greatest success over these years in us um, meeting the needs of this very vulnerable population. Uh, one additional question. You've got, you've got an older generation uh, and you've got 
the uh, young people who were born in this country and are certainly part of their communities, but they have a very different experience growing up as Americans um, from, from different ethnic backgrounds, but they're American kids, and I'm sure they've adopted a lot of American uh, values and ideas. And does that uh, help uh, translate some of these issues to the uh, older generation, or is there a real um, uh, gap there? And you know, parents and kids don't really like to talk about uh, uh, sex together. We know that. So, uh, how, I, and maybe you see this younger population. Do you are you do you think there'll be some changes uh, as a result of you know m- many um, millions of immigrants here, even from these populations who are born and raised as American kids? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think there those tensions still persist. Um, we definitely see, even in terms of um, my work around female genital cutting, where you you see the parents who who may have had more severe forms of cutting or may have um, cultural mores and norms that they brought with them to this country that were upheld um, based on their um, sociocultural context, but their children are U.S. born and very Americanized and may have very different perspectives on dating and relationships. And there, those tensions rear its head, especially um, the um, there's an ever, ever-present tension of um, grappling with the duality of uh, living in two worlds, so to speak, and how do you navigate that um, across the generational divide? Um, And it's something that um, we have tackled from the research side when we've engaged in work in the local Somali community around female genital cutting. We had a federal grant where we were able to engage in discussions across generations with youth with their parent, their mothers, um, um, elders. We even even engaged men and uh, young adult men as well, as well as uh, religious leaders. And we brought them together um, as a larger group, but we also made sure that we created those safe spaces within those generational um, um, enclaves to really have frank and open discussions around um, general cutting and what this means around their families as well as seeking care um, and health and wellness. And it's interesting, you clearly see those generational divides even within those spaces uh, of, of men and women talking around this issue. But I think it's something that we can continue working towards in terms of um, um, helping to um, bring a, about greater dialogue. And I think that's the critical piece because oftentimes, as you mentioned, those silos exist where it's not common for men and women to talk about some of them deep issues, especially around sexuality. Um, and being able to engage in those discussions will also help enhance the advocacy and advocacy that even men can do on behalf of their, their sisters and their mothers or their wives. So I think uh, we have a ways to go, but I, but, it's an opportunity for us to continue working and engaging the community uh, across these various spaces and across generations um, to um, to advance um, sexual health equity for this population. D- Dr. Kingsburg, I want to turn to the issue of 
HSDD, which I'm going to ask you to uh, explain. It's a condition that one in women, one in ten women experience. It's essentially loss of sex drive. But will you tell us what it is and whether there are treatments for it, and explain why HSDD differs from just being a matter of a woman's age, her attraction to her partner, or being in a long-term relationship? Sure. Um, I I just wanted to add something to what Dr. Johnson said, though, because um, I'm in. I have admired what she does for years and years. I, I could listen to her lecture all the time uh, at the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. We do a, a, a three-day training course for non-sexual medicine practitioners, and she uh, always, you know, you could hear a pin drop when she gives her lecture. So, um, uh, but I, you know, even in a broader sense, you know, w- with gesture every day, sort of, um, you know, a typical American woman who has not undergone all the uh, abuse and the fear and the displacement, I, you know, even, even that needs to be, you know, these women need to be given that same, that, that safe space and uh, be encouraged that their sexual life is, is to be respected and, um, and they're entitled to it. Cause I certainly see so many women uh, particularly as they're aging, thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm in my 60s. I, I probably should just give up my sex life. And we want to make sure that practitioners don't inadvertently give that same message because they're young and they're thinking, well, my mother doesn't have sex. So clearly this 65-year-old woman isn't having sex. And we need to empower women and practitioners to be, you know, more accurate in their terminology to, you know, I, I, this podcast is one way we can combat shame and embarrassment. We're going to use accurate terminology. We're going to say clitoris. We're going to say vagina. We're going to say orgasm, right? You're not going to edit that out, are you? No. No? Good. Keep going. Good. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so with that, let me just say the, the, the HSDD is hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It is a mouthful and it, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to say than ED, right? Erectile dysfunction, but hypoactive sexual desire disorder is the most common sexual complaint of women of all ages. If you exclude um, issues that are related to pain, which tend to be you know, medically related. Uh, women have pain because there there's a problem. So uh, psychologist Irv Binnick has always been quoted as saying, is, is the sex painful or is the pain sexual? And 99% of the time, it's that sex is painful because of an underlying medical reason. So, but, but the most common sexual dysfunction is hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which you did get right, Sally. It is the uh, the loss of interest in wanting, wanting to be sexual. So women who have HSDD will say they've lost the wanting and they want it back. They're distressed by this. So in order to meet the criteria for having this disorder or dysfunction, you have to be bothered by it. You have to be distressed. So women will come in and if you ask them, do you have any sexual concerns? And they say, I have no interest and I miss it. That is HSDD. So, you know, women who are in relationships for the most part are having sexual activity, usually out of duty sex or because they know their partner will, you know, will enjoy it or they feel like it might wreck their relationship if they don't. 
But what women are missing is the drive, the wanting to want. And so just like I broke down the categories of sexual dysfunction into four categories, let me break down the concept of desire into what we call a psychobiological uh, approach, whereas there are uh, biologic factors that contribute to desire or wanting. There are psychological factors that contribute to um, healthy wanting or not wanting. There are cultural and religious factors that can contribute to the desire problems. And there are interpersonal factors that can contribute to uh, problems with desire. And a clinician simply needs to kind of look at these four factors with with women who are very smart. They can tell you that, you know, I don't want to have sex because I hate my partner and no amount of you know, any biologic issue is going to fix that, right? It is. So women are smart. If you ask them the right questions, they can, they, the two of you, the two of us can help figure out what's going on. Are there underlying biological factors? And we know that hormones can be contributing to sexual desire as well as neurochemistry. So neurotransmitters, for example, dopamine, which is the uh, neurochemical of desire is involved. So there are biologic factors, health risks, uh, health conditions, but there are also psychological factors, depression, for example, and cultural values, which Dr. Johnson can talk a lot about, which is why she's got, you know, women from 60 countries having all kinds of different cultural values that could either support or inhibit sexual desire. And again, the quality of the relationship. If there are biologic factors, um, for example, uh, you know, we look at uh, HSDD similar to how we look at depression, right? So there are biologic factors underlying depression, and we have antidepressants that would treat that by virtue of uh, essentially rebalancing neurochemistry. And when we think about treating the, the underlying biologic factors with hypoactive sexual desire disorder, it's a very similar approach. We, we have two um, FDA-approved uh, pharmacologic treatments for premenopausal women, and don't get me started on the frustration with the fact that um, these these um, non-hormonal treatments are only approved in premenopausal women, but they are approved in premenopausal women. And then we have an off-label, meaning we use it, but it is not an FDA-approved indication of testosterone for postmenopausal women, so those are the uh, the biologic uh, treatments. the The premenopausal treatments are called Addy A D D Y I and Vilesi V Y L E E S I, um, and they are approved for premenopausal women. They are very different in how they're um, uh, delivered, and but the goal is the same to improve the wanting. And women will say it's a subtle shift from going from not even thinking about it. It's like, think about it like appetite. You know, you have, you walk into your favorite restaurant and no matter how much you would like to be hungry to enjoy your favorite meal, you have no appetite. Well, women who have HSDD will say, I, I want to want, I miss that anticipation, the enjoyment. And, and these um, treatments um, add to that by subtly shifting from no appetite to some. And that's what women want back is their ability to have some appetite. So, so Cheryl, let me just interrupt so we can make sure we're absolutely clear. So HSDD doesn't have to do with your, um, your age, you're not attracted to your partner, uh, you're in a long-term relationship and you're bored. It's something, uh, what, what I think you said psychos, psychosexual or 
psychobiological. Psychobiological. No, I, yeah. well, yeah. So we want to look at it as a psychobiological uh, components. It's it's brain chemistry. Uh, well, uh, HSDD can have different etiologies. Loss of desire can have different etiologies. But if we're uh, the 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 source. There are different ways in which um, uh, loss of desire can occur. They can occur either from biologic factors, from psychological factors, from cultural factors, or from interpersonal factors. When we are thinking about treating it with a pharmacologic, with a drug, we want to look at the biologic factors and to see if that has been uh, that's the source, right? So when you're with a patient, what you say is, let's break this down and see what's going on here. When you say uh, the etiology, let's find out what's happening. It isn't, it isn't some things, but it might be others. And you're saying Correct. Uh, it could be biological. And so Correct. a patient will come in and you have to tease that out and figure out if there's a treatment, if, if this is really HSDD. And if so, if this treatment, the treatments that are available will, um, uh, will, be appropriate for this particular patient. And yes, Sally, and as much as I just tried to make it sound as complicated as I absolutely could, it doesn't have to be that complicated. And uh, there is actually a screening um, tool that the FDA had wanted for exactly the reason of figuring out who would benefit from a medicine versus something else uh, called the Decreased Sexual Desire Screener, which women can find on their own online and see uh, because it asks about, you know, changes in desire and it gets to factors that might be contributing that may or may not be related to hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Like, you know, if when I say there could be psychological factors, if, for example, you have depression and as a result of depression, you lose interest in all things, including sex, that would not be hypoactive sexual desire disorder, right? That would be depression. Um and if you are have interpersonal issues, it may be that the relationship conflict is more the culprit than it is a loss of desire. On the other hand, there are many women who'll come in and say, um, my relationship was great, but because I've lost my desire for sex, if I don't fix what's going on with my sexual life, I think I'm going to lose my relationship. So it sounds complicated, but you really just have those four buckets to be able to look at so that you can tease out what might be going on, and then that helps you design a treatment. And so when it looks like the underlying cause of the loss of desire is more biological, you kind of rule out the other things. It's not your relationship. It's not that you're depressed or have other psychological factors, and you. it's not that your religious and cultural beliefs get in the way. And it's kind of an exclusionary um, conclusion. Then you can look at well, are there pharmacologic options that might help? I certainly do psychotherapy to help shift, you know, belief systems and help couples who've become sort of um, bored in their relationships. And and there are there are ways in which psychotherapy can help um, even when there's a biologic cause. But we also want to make sure that women have uh, treatment options too, uh, pharmacologic options. I get a lot of pushback that we are pathologizing a normal experience for women to lose their desire. And I'd say that's not true. There are many women who come in and they're terribly distressed. They miss this and they would like a treatment 
to be able to fix it. And while psychotherapy, and I'm sort of good at it, can help some of them with those women, just like depression, I can't treat everybody who has depression with just psychotherapy. And so we'd like to have those pharmacologic options available to these women and let women choose. You know, let's not be so paternalistic that we say, oh, well, since it's not going, you know, drugs are not for everybody, we shouldn't let anybody have them. We really want to give women options. And so we have two uh, treatments that are approved for premenopausal women, one that we use off-label for postmenopausal women with good data, and uh, and women and their providers can figure out what's going to be best for them. Okay, well, I'm going to ask, uh, that's great. And uh, I, Dr. Johnson, I want to know if you see HSDD in the population you treat as well. But before, why don't we uh, put that together in the next question I'm going to ask you, which is, let's say you do have a, a problem with your sexual health. You're, you're, you're female, you're going to go see your either your uh, um, primary or you're going to see an OBGYN. Which would you recommend? If you've got a problem with sexual health, What? Uh, who should you talk to? Should it be your primary? Should it be your OBGYN? And what if you sense that your healthcare provider isn't comfortable discussing this topic. Krista, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I guess the one thing would be um, <clears throat> empowering our patients uh, to, to not give up. Um, and if they find that their primary care provider is reluctant or um, may give um, condescending um a condescending reply or is really not insightful, perhaps um, seeking another provider. I know something that I always stress is that it does take a village that I, I seek to uh, surround myself with an army of um, expertise in terms of it might not just be one provider. You may need to engage a pelvic floor physical therapist or a sex therapist or a behavioral health counselor in addition to um, a primary care provider, I, use, I, I lean heavily on peer support, peer advocates, often uh, say through our cultural health navigators, these peer advocates help support women and to empower them that they can seek a resolution to the concerns that they have or they can um, seek care and seek help because, again, this is often so stigmatizing that they're often reluctant to even take that first step. So I would say for women to not give up, to be persistent, and that there are, we, we want to um, build a capacity of providers across fields, especially OBGYN, because we're often the frontline providers for women. So it's incumbent upon us within this field to be the most knowledgeable, to be able to provide um, sexual health care in a culturally appropriate and empathic manner. But I, I think we also need to do a better job, as Dr. Kingsburg mentioned earlier, in terms of how can we nurture those pipelines for students and residents in training to get exposure to sexual medicine uh, through mentorship, through um, clinical um, um, opportunities where they can gain more exposure to um, sexual health interviewing strategies, whether that we can support and mentor trainees who can go to conferences such as ISHWISH um, to, to gain more exposure to the field and potentially 
become those attending physicians and uh, scientists who can then train those um, needs. So I think we really need to lift a cadre of training among uh, physicians across the primary care fields, especially OBGYN, so that they can be um, uh, respectful and understand the and be able to ask those um, sensitive questions so that women can feel supported and that their, their concerns are, are validated. I mean, I think we also need to um, work to even enhance the way in which we open those doors of communication. I know for my population, I rely less on pamphlets and handouts, but I use a lot of audiovisual aids and Im imagery. Um, my colleague in Geneva, Dr. Jasmine Abdul-Kadir, is working on a 3D model of the clitoris to be used by clinicians to help in the counseling and education of their patients around genital anatomy so that they can even understand perhaps, you know, the root causes of sexual health concerns and that could aid in clinical decision-making and counseling with the patients. So I would say it really takes an army and we need to reach out across the aisle and, and take a multidisciplinary and holistic lens to how we engage our patients so that it's, we don't just rely on one provider to be the end all be all, but we really seek to engage um, a team-based approach to providing patient-centered care around sexual health and wellness. You know, I think that is a really interesting idea to have um, women probably and men. I mean, the last time I remember looking at a graph or a chart with a, with the um, uh, body parts was in um, eighth grade health class. And of course, everybody giggled and was really embarrassed. But I think probably for many, if not most women, and probably men as well, but you know, women have no idea what their various um, uh, body parts look like down there and may, might not want to know, but it's actually a really important lesson for people to understand what's going on, I would think. Um, so it should let me, let me uh, make sure um, listeners understand who should bring this topic up of, 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 of sexual health. Should it be the, the, um, the healthcare provider or should it be the patient? And um, if the healthcare provider brings it up, what, what kinds of questions should they be asking? And lastly, if you um, have these questions, is there a resource for women who want to make sure they're not going to some, you know, talk to somebody who's going to, as one of my OBGYNs was, seemed very embarrassed. I think he turned like four shades of red when I raised the question of women's sexual health. And um, it was clear he had no um, uh, comfort level talking about it. Um, is there a place, a resource where you, like, a, like you know, a, a, a list of, of physicians who, or, or healthcare providers generally, uh, psychologists who are available to talk about these issues. Sarah, do you want to take that question? Sure. Earlier, when you were describing the importance of the anatomy and that women and girls need to understand their own anatomy, you talked about down there. So that's number one. One of the things we need to change is to change the down there. Um, and and to help um, you know little girls and women be comfortable with describing their genitals and their vulva and their vagina and their clitoris. Um, and so, how would you? How should I say? So they should be comfortable describing their genitals, their vulva, and their clitoris. Those yes. are. Um, we should just get comfortable with those yes. words. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's very helpful. 
And the answer to who should bring it up, it really is the responsibility of the healthcare professional. Uh, Dr. Johnson had talked earlier about uh, the WHO and the the fact that the, you know sexual health is a ba- basic human right, and it goes on to say, and it is the responsibility of healthcare providers in reproductive health, at the very least, but re- healthcare providers to address the sexual health of their patients. And so it is up to the clinician to bring it up. They should bring it up. They should, which is, again, what we're trying to do is to encourage clinicians to get comfortable with it. I Can I tell you how many gynecologists are comfortable talking about smelly discharge, but they can't actually ask about orgasm? That is crazy, but they are uncomfortable with it. So and part of the reason is they don't really feel well-trained to address sexual concerns, but we are trying again to change that. But even if they can't be comfortable with treating it, they need to at least bring it up so that they can then refer out, which gets to your second question of where should they refer. Uh, but they should be the ones to bring it up. And let me tell your listeners or patients or whoever, if if your clinician doesn't bring it up, find another one. Uh, there are many, many primary care and gynecologists who really can at least ask. That's all they need to do is just ask. And if there is a, a problem, what sexual concerns do you have? Even do you, yes, no, do you have any sexual concerns? And if you say, yes, I have this problem or that problem, I am not the one to treat this, but I'm so glad you brought it up. Let me help get you a referral. And I will tell you one of the only benefits of COVID has been the the blossoming of telehealth so that even though there may not be somebody in your town or in your city um, at this point, it's you got to stay within your license of state. You can find somebody who then can treat you, um, and so that's part. You know, at least you can get that telehealth consult. Um, where should people go to look? The International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Again, a mouthful, which is isswsh.org, uh, has a list of has a find a provider by state by city. Wow. The, That's really the, helpful. The, yeah, the Society for Sex Therapy and Research, which is sstar.net, has uh, uh, clinicians and researchers that are uh, that specialize in sexual medicine. You can find ASECT, which um, is the Association for Sexual Educa- Educators and Counselors. Um, and, uh, the North American menopause society, I, you know, uh, full disclosure, I'm a former president of, of NAMS, North American menopause society, and that the premier society for midlife women. Um, and you said is sexual concerns or HSDD only in younger women? No, it's across the board and, uh, midlife women, um, can seek help with the North American menopause society. And they have certified menopause practitioners on their website, which is menopause.org. Krista, any other societies you would recommend? So I am part of the NFGM network, the U.S. NFGM network. And as part of that network, we have a national clinician database of clinicians across the United States who have expertise in the care of women and adolescents affected by female genital mutilation and cutting. And so we are spread out across the U.S. and we have a moderated listserv where uh, clinicians can receive support, but also 
those who are working in regions of the country where there isn't a local expertise, say uh, 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 academic center where you have a uh, clinical site with a provider serving this population, they can have access to our national repository of resources and expertise to gain insight on the care of their patient, whether it's surgical care, whether it is um, psycho psychosexual counseling, whether it's ethical dilemmas, mandatory reporting, I mean, it's, it's, it runs the full gamut. And so my email address is cejohn11, so C as in cat, E as in egg, J-O-H-N, the number 11, at asu.edu, as in Arizona State University, asu.edu. So if anyone who's interested can reach out to me and I can connect you with the moderator of that network because um, it is something that we want to be widely accessible um, to clinicians who are working in any part of the country who may be grappling with um, the care of patients affected by this practice. Well, I've come to the end of my questions. Do you guys have anything uh, else you'd like to add? Anything that we have, uh, we have not um, focused on that you think is particularly important in women's sexual health? I'm thrilled you brought it up. You, you are doing the podcast, Sally. Thank you for um, for allowing us to uh, express the importance of women's sexual health. And uh, and I do think it's a, a consumer advocacy issue. So um, thank you for jumping right on it. Well, we're delighted to have had two national experts coming from very different uh, geographic and uh, very diverse populations. Uh, talking about a really important issue to women. So, um, uh, Woody, is there anything else that we need to uh, do? I think you two have to hang on for a little bit. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you, uh, Dr. Kingsburg, for the wonderful work and your your dedication to the uh, uh, women and the populations of patients that you serve. It's so important to get these conversations out here, as uncomfortable as they might be for many people, apparently including me. Um, but I've I've learned that I've, I've uh, I, I I can do better, and I think all of us can do better in having having these uh, conversations and and being um, open about issues that are very real for uh, many millions of women. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter. Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this.